0: It is eye movement, so that basically means that you would follow a light, for example, on a light bar that moved from one side to another, or you would follow the therapist's fingers, so they would move across your field of vision from left to right. You go quite fast, and the theory behind the eye movements is that it replicates REM sleep, which we know is the part in our sleep stage that is very involved and very important to adaptive information processing. It's kind of where we do our downloading and processing and figuring out what we need to do.
1: That's Dr. Cheryl Cross. She is a chartered clinical psychologist and she feels that EMDR therapy can be transformational. This is the Lizard Wellbeing Show, the transformational podcast, helping us all to have a better second half. And I'm Liz Earle, on a bit of a mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And I think today we are hearing a lot more, aren't we, about how trauma can shape us, it can hold us back and influences our behaviour in later life. Well, EMDR was a therapy that I have had personal experience of, not actually me, but within members of my family. And I have seen firsthand just how extraordinarily helpful, fast and beneficial the whole therapy can be. Well, Cheryl works with clients who've experienced severe trauma and have symptoms of PTSD, disassociative disorders, anxiety, depression and other really chronic mental health difficulties. And her work always honours that mind-body connection and our innate human capacity to heal well one of the therapies that she specializes in is EMDR and that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy it's a really powerful scientifically proven psychotherapy relatively recently discovered actually that uses both the mind and the body to help people recover from traumatic events that have led to poor mental health Well, Cheryl, welcome. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I can't tell you how I have been looking forward to this conversation because my family has had personal experience of just how brilliant EMDR therapy is. So before we get into that, can we just talk a little bit first about trauma generally, you know, what it is and how you define it? And, and you know, let's, let's sort of drill down into that before we then look at how EMDR can
0: help. I think trauma is absolutely the the perfect place to start because I think we talk about it a lot and rightly so, it, it's discussed so much more now but actually I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding actually about what it really is. And there's lo- loads of very... Um, Definite definitions and diagnoses in, in things like the DSM and the ICD11, which are our sort of diagnostical, statistical manuals, our Bibles, as you were, that, that help us inform diagnosis when we're we're understanding any kind of mental health. And those revolve around life-threatening events, events that fundamentally are horrifying and overwhelming. But for me, the best way of defining trauma is that life-threatening powerlessness. And powerlessness is so key, I think, to understanding trauma. It's those moments where the event or events completely exceed our resources to cope. They overwhelm us physically, emotionally, mentally and spiritually We are absolutely at a loss and we are powerless to do anything about it. And it's those moments, I think, that really define trauma for me. And that gives me a much kind of broader understanding, I think, of of trauma. It it helps me understand trauma from the perspective, for example, of life-threatening illnesses, cancer diagnoses, as well as early childhood trauma, domestic violence Trauma that you might experience as a refugee, it really helps us understand a much more global concept of trauma. I think that's
1: absolutely fascinating. I've never heard it described quite so well and in such a thought provoking way the fact that it can be defined as basically powerlessness, which makes complete sense. You know, I remember listening to a talk that Gabor Mate gave, and, and, you know, he was saying that, in his opinion, every single person on the planet has suffered trauma. Yeah, because there will be something in our background, whether it's from our childhood or young adulthood or later in life where we were traumatized. And I guess that sense of powerlessness, it can come from, as you say, all sorts of things from a health diagnosis through Mm. to I know you've worked with veterans and Mm -hmm. soldiers and people in, in war zones or people, you know, with domestic violence and abuse and. Um, you know sexual trauma all that kind of thing it doesn't have to be an extreme trauma does it to have that sense of powerlessness
0: no absolutely And, and that for me is that real golden thread Liz that goes through all of those experiences that sense of powerlessness that's what unites it I think that, you know, for example, the coercive control that people can experience in relationships, bullying at work, for example, you know, there are so many different ways that it has such an impact on our nervous system. And I think it's really important to recognise because many people, when I work with them, will say, oh, I can't possibly have PTSD. I can't possibly have experienced trauma. I'm not a soldier. I've not been to a war zone I think it's just so important to recognize that the war zones that we face as human beings are not just on the battlefield, you know, they are yeah. they're in found in so many different ways in our experiences. And I adore gabo Matty. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and the research, you know, I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. just a fabulous human being. The the, the yeah. research completely backs this up. You know, we're on the whole, roughly about 80% of us will experience a traumatic event in our life. And the actual statistics around PTSD are a lot less. So uh those that maybe go on to develop PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. In the UK, roughly it's somewhere between sort of 5 and 10%, depending on what population you're looking at. But that's PTSD as defined by the DSM or the ICD-11, as I say, those very uh, strategic kind of rule-driven sort of ways of understanding trauma. But to look at what is a traumatising event and the impact that trauma can have on someone is actually really complex.
1: Well I can think of many things looking back in my life situations where I was powerless and it's a very interesting way of of framing it so once we recognize it in ourselves and I'm sure a lot of our listeners here are actually having the same sort of penny drop moment perhaps how does it
0: then shape us emotionally and, and how does it hold us back? Trauma does present in different ways. So we do recognise that, for example, early childhood trauma, which we also call complex PTSD because it is a a cumulative experience of trauma. It's multiple trauma events over a period of time and even complex PTSD later on in life where you, for example, are in an abusive relationship where you experience multiple events of trauma does impact on the system differently to a perhaps a single incident trauma like a road traffic accident or a sexual assault so we're not differentiating the difference in severity just the complexity of it how many times that can happen and the the events that you've been through but what it does is it affects the entire system so as i said on a physical level an emotional level psychological spiritual level even and we know that trauma changes the way your nervous system works. It changes how your brain functions. It is an invisible brain injury in, in as much as there is a very clear neurological signature to PTSD. There are very clear areas of the brain and the nervous system that change after a single incident event, certainly after a um, multiple traumatic events. We know, for example, that early childhood trauma and that more complex experience of trauma, but particularly early trauma where it's happening to a developing nervous system, changes the nervous system, it changes the endocrine system, it changes your cardiovascular system, it resets the entire developing human being. Because remember, you know, that child is developing, growing its brain, growing that nervous system to a state of threat so that the every single system within that little human being is changed. And we can see that again in later life trauma as well. So there's very distinct areas that change and it has a direct knock on effect in what you would see if you knew and loved somebody who was going through trauma. So emotionally, you can either get huge high levels of distress or a real kind of roller coaster ride, or actually you can get trauma that presents where people are very shut down and disconnected. It changes the the way that they are able to concentrate and connect with human beings around them. It changes their sense of safety. And, and of course, that has a massive knock-on effect on their behaviours and their relationships.
1: I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this, maybe who've been affected by childhood trauma or early child trauma, maybe child abuse or or adverse events in early life, who will be thinking, gosh, has that really shaped my entire life and my whole being? Mm. And if there are people out there or perhaps, you know, young children who are experiencing this, mm. what's happening physically within their brains? I mean, can it be reversed? I mean, now that we've identified what's happening or what has happened, can it then be put right or is it too late if you suddenly, you know,
0: discover that you're in adulthood and you wake up to this recognition? Is it too late? Never. So there is the most amazing thing called neuroplasticity, which means that our brain has the capacity to change. Our nervous system has the capacity to change right up until we draw our final breath. So we used to think that the the kind of fully formed adult brain was pretty concrete, you know, that actually can do much to influence or change it. But we're so wrong about that. So there are very real changes. So we know, for example, there are real changes in the way the frontal lobes work. So that's like the chief executive of the company. You know, that's the that's the bit that's in charge of our entire brain. It helps us concentrate and focus and connect with others. It sort of is the, the driving seat, as it were. There are real changes in your amygdala, which is the, the kind of smoke alarm, the bit of your brain that detects threat and tells you whether you're safe or not safe there are changes in your hippocampus. So what we notice is that the frontal lobes kind of switch off. So they're no longer kind of driving the the brain as it were. The hippocampus goes offline. In fact, we know that there's actually shrinkage in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is really important in memory. It's our long-term memory store. So it actually shrinks. There's actual neuronal death that occurs. But we know that that can regrow. Um, when really? you Yep. When you stop bathing your brain in cortisol, your hippocampus is able to recover and the amygdala grows so the smoke alarm gets bigger so i think of the the amygdala somewhere between the smoke alarm and the security guard right so the security guard gets really buff um, when you go (laughs) when you're when you're traumatized and it it just kind of it it it, um we we actually know that it shrinks down and there's there's the most amazing research that looks now at emdr particularly obviously that that's you know the therapeutic approach that i use and how the eye movements actually create almost a a cascade domino effect which reduces the activation of the amygdala that actually allows you to feel less frightened and less threatened. It actually impacts on the entire nervous system and yes it is absolutely never too late to make those changes. I've worked with people in their 80s and there is such a difference between That knowing, you know, knowing in the background that something happened, knowing that things weren't quite right, but never Mm. really addressing it and really knowing. You know, I had somebody describe it to me once as I was kind of aware of like a TV playing in another room. She said, I could hear it playing, but I couldn't quite hear the words. And then one day someone wheeled the TV into the room I was in and it was sat right in front of me. And suddenly I couldn't ignore that trauma anymore. And and that's exactly what it can be like for people. But it is never too late to make those changes. It's never too late to reshape and rewire your nervous system. That is hugely encouraging. And, you know, you mentioned there
1: EMDR, I said in the intro, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. That's correct. How then it sounds very different and very specific in its approach to other forms of Mental health therapies and techniques
0: yes, it is for starters, it is very much a kind of bottom up approach therapy. so what I mean by that is your traditional talking therapies are working really with the neocortex, the top bit of the brain, our sort of our most uh, developed but newest part of the brain, to think about challenging how you view the world um, thinking of evidence against the way maybe you're approaching things or to find evidence against how you might be might be thinking and it's it's hoping that through talking about and it does work you know there's there's good evidence to support those those more sort of narrative ways of working that the the neocortex then is able to send those lovely calming fibres down to the more primitive parts of the brain where the amygdala sits for example the limbic system where the emotional centers of the brain and to calm them down. EMDR kind of works in reverse so it it works by actually there's not an awful lot of talking what we do is really connect people with the way it feels in their body so we're, we're straight away trying to work from a bottom up approach we're getting them to think about how it truly feels to reconnect them with that trauma event to light up that neural pathway, and then work by changing the nervous system from a bottom up approach. So you're you're working working in a very different way. So my experience with clients is that they'll come back in and they'll say, gosh, I I found myself in this situation where normally I would have been triggered, but actually I was fine. I, I felt really calm and I was just able to approach it very differently. And they're not in that moment applying a strategy or a technique in order to do that. They are just simply responding very differently in that situation. Whereas maybe with a talking therapy, you would go into a situation that you knew was going to be a trigger and you would apply a technique, an approach in order to do it. So we kind of do that bit when we're together in therapy, the change starts to happen in the nervous system so that it's just experienced differently for the client.
1: Absolutely fascinating. And I know that when this eye movement, you're you're often moving between right and left, you know, you're looking towards the right you're looking towards the left what's happening in
0: our brain during that time and that is a good, very another very good question we're still trying to figure this out really Liz so luckily EMDR therapists seem to be great at doing research so we've got lots of research to show that uh, it's highly effective you know it's in the nice guidelines in uh, recommended by the world health organization etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. but the mechanisms of change are still up for debate there's lots of amazing stuff looking at the neurological changes which which i find fascinating the theory as to what's going on though is still being looked into You are absolutely right. It is eye movement. That's certainly where it started and that's where lots of the research is based. So that basically means that you would follow a light, for example, on a light bar that moved from one side to another, or you would follow the therapist's fingers. So they would move across your field of vision from left to right. You go quite fast and the theory behind the eye movements is that it replicates REM sleep, which we know is the part in our sleep stage that is very involved and very important to adaptive information processing. It's kind of where we do our downloading and processing and figuring out what we need to do. And people will often give the example of sort of to clients of waking up the next morning after going to sleep on a bit of a a problem or something that you're dwelling on. And you kind of you have a bit of an answer in the morning as to what you want to do about it or a plan. As I say, very recently, really recently. So in 2022, There was a study looking at mice and they adapted an EMDR type therapy with a little light bar for mice. Would you believe it? And they (laughs) I know it's crazy, isn't it? And they showed that actually what it produced was this domino effect. So it it actually activated certain key areas of the brain, which ended up. Reducing the activation of the amygdala, so again, that smoke alarm just got switched down. So the the mice that were previously absolutely terrified of this noise, this sound that they'd been exposed to, became desensitized to it. And differently to other therapies, so other therapies would say you just keep exposing to the scary thing until you're no longer Mm. scared of it. The in the EMDR, what you do is you do the EMDR processing and that causes this neurological change and shift in the brain. One of the theories of EMDR is that it is, uh, so we don't just do eye movements now, we do bilateral stimulation so we can do eye movements we can do tappers for example where you might hold a buzzer in either hand and the buzz moves from one side to the other Mm. um, or tones you put headphones on and then the sound moves from one side to the other or we tap the client from one side to the other or they do the tapping themselves and it's crossing the midline so it's moving from one side of the body to the other and I'll often say to clients, well, I'm not allowed to go around touching people's brains. It's, it's generally frowned upon. Right. But actually, by doing, doing this stimulation, so tapping from one side to the other, they are activating their brain and getting it to work together. Because the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body, and the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. So by doing that and thinking about the worst moment of the worst moment of their lives, if that's what we're doing in that moment you're getting the brain to work in an integrative way. And a brain that works in an integrative way is uh, much more able to pull together the adaptive information that it needs to make sense of this trauma experience that is stuck in its nervous system. And we know from fMRI studies that there is a big shift after EMDR. So we know, for example, that if you do an um, fMRI study with someone before trauma treatment they have a part at the front that lights up when they're able to tell you about this horrific moment but with no emotion whatsoever and then when you get them to think about the emotion of it and the flashbacks and you know all of the um, distress and overwhelm that bit no longer lights up but a bit on the right at the back lights up but the two don't talk to each other. And after EMDR therapy, there is increased blood flow and connection between those two parts. And that's certainly people's lived experience. They'll say to me, you know, it feels like I'm able to bring in that grown-up bit, Mm -hmm. that grown-up part of me that can just tell the story, but it's now looking after that little part that held all the emotion. Gosh.
1: So is that what, when, when people talk about reprocessing, in EMDR. Is is that what that's doing?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're absolutely right. There are the different kind of phases of EMDR. So within the EMDR, we have an eight phase approach And the the desensitization and reprocessing is kind of different elements of the EMDR magic, as it were. So the desensitization is that reduction in fear response, reduction in distress that happens. But the reprocessing, absolutely, that's for me, that's where the real magic happens. That's where you're connecting in all of that adaptive information. So in EMDR, we work on the premise that everyone has an innate capacity to heal that actually trauma happens to us as Gabor Matty says right nobody nobody escapes that what happens is it gets stuck and um, we we get scared of it we avoid it we can't process it we have no one to talk it through with and the brain switches into a threat response which kind of closes that down And with EMDR and the reprocessing part, you are linking up those neural networks again and bringing in the person's capacity to know how to heal themselves. So you're linking in the missing bits. This is where... The unspoken stuff, the undone things, the incomplete actions that might not have been able to happen during the trauma event can be completed. So, for example, working with clients where they weren't able to stop the sexual assault, they weren't able to shout or say anything because they physically couldn't. Actually, it would have been dangerous to have done so. And in EMDR therapy, the reprocessing bit allows them to finally say that, to finally stand up, to move, to feel that they can breathe again, that they're safe again, for example. And and that reprocessing bit allows their nervous system to update. It says, okay, that happened, but I'm safe now, because actually PTSD more than anything is almost like... um, a disorder of time there are parts of our nervous system which are still stuck in that most worst moment of our lives EMDR helps us to to release that
1: and ultimately I guess illustrating the power of neuroplasticity yes. within the brain yes massively so
0: yeah absolutely very
1: encouraging well stay right there because I want to talk a bit more about who EMDR can help specifically in just a moment
2: D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want
1: flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Okay, well, just before we get back to today's show, I wanted to share a podcast that I have been enjoying in recent weeks. It's called Desert Island Dishes. Yes, dishes, not discs. And it's a brilliant foodie podcast hosted by Marji Namura. And each episode, Marji interviews high profile guests about their seven desert island dishes, uncovering the food experiences that have shaped who they are today brilliant idea. Well yesterday I really enjoyed listening to the episode with friend of the show Dr Rupee. I am always inspired by his passion for starting a much needed food revolution and for training his fellow medics in the art of nutrition but it was great to get some insight into his favourite dishes too. You know his mum's garlic chilli prawns drenched in olive oil and served with fresh French bread bread particularly stood out. How delicious does that sound? Well, you can find Desert Island Dishes wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go take a listen, let me know how you get on. Okay, let's get back to today's episode of the Lizzo Wellbeing Show. So Cheryl, it is absolutely fascinating, this whole idea that we can revisit trauma and and literally reprogram physically reprogram our brain and 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 move on and feel so much better for it and our behavior changes can we just go back and talk about the history of, of, of EMDR? You know, who, who discovered all this, that moving the eyes would actually relieve trauma?
0: Yeah, well, there's a, a famous, uh, it's its almost sort of folklore <laughs> uh, story of Francine Shapiro, who was um, the kind of creator of EMDR back in the early 80s, who was contemplating and working on her own difficult life experiences while going on a walk through a park. And she felt better at the end of the walk. And she was trying to replicate what was going on in that process. And she thought that actually maybe it was the saccades So the movement of the eyes from right to left as you're walking. She So she tried to replicate that in a clinical environment. And actually tried to create a, a kind of protocol around that. And to begin with, EMDR was used very much for single incident trauma. So as I say, those road traffic accident, the um, sexual assault, the you know, all of those sorts of things. And was shown to be hugely successful, very powerful, even after one treatment session. And it long lasting effects. So with, with therapy, we don't consider it to be an effective therapeutic treatment. If when you check up with someone three months, six months, three years later, things have gone back to where they were. So we know that EMDR works and it, it works long term and people report huge amounts of happiness after EMDR. Uh, that's a, a really uh, standout kind of research finding that we we have. But then very quickly, we thought, OK, well, if it's working for single incident trauma, can we apply this to complex trauma. So as I say, complex trauma that happens in adulthood with those multiple traumatic events or to childhood. And we found that, yes, absolutely, it works really, really well. With early childhood trauma, the protocol is adapted slightly because actually early childhood trauma does sit in the nervous system differently and people can uh, access it differently. Mm. But we also now know that EMDR can be used with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, addictions, working with pain. And it can be used across the lifespan. So with children, adolescents, adults, and even right at the end of life, working with uh, palliative care.
1: Absolutely fascinating. I'm interested there to pick up on early childhood trauma, because I think a lot of the time and certainly people I've spoken to who've experienced very early childhood trauma they don't actually remember it because in great detail partly because they might have been so young I mean some of the trauma might have occurred during babyhood even or or in very small children or it occurs at a time when something happens that's just so awful you block it out because you don't want to remember it. How then do you access it how 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 far back can you go? i mean can you go back to 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 babyhood
0: Yes, absolutely yes, yeah. see for me, this is the beauty of of e m d r so we call that pre trauma and actually pre-verbal trauma can encompass quite a span of years, really, because if you think about when children even begin to get a grasp of emotional language, actually that, you know, that isn't just the first couple of years, is it? You know, that's that's much longer. But pre-verbal trauma is is trauma where exactly as you're describing, Liz, that somebody is encoding the trauma in a very different way you know they they're encoding their experiences and their memories in a very different way because they don't have the language in order to encode it in the way that we we might do as adults and of course it's happening to that developing nervous system when we're born we don't we don't actually to begin with have a sense that we are a separate entity to the world around us and if abuse is happening in that context that has a huge impact on our sense of self, on our very sense of existence, let alone bigger things like self-worth and um, value and feeling loved and things like that. So with EMDR, we work with body memories, we work with fragments of memory. So, for example, I wouldn't necessarily expect, some people do remember very early memories, but I wouldn't necessarily expect that at all with an attachment-focused EMDR process, what we do is, so that's working with that early childhood stuff, it's an adapted protocol, we would look at someone's life now, we would look at the problems and difficulties that are showing up, You know, someone might say to us, I'm having real problems with my boss. You know, I I feel really quite threatened. I'm not quite sure why. You know, it's just every conversation feels really threatening, really struggling in my relationship. You know, I've got lots of health changes going on, for example, like the menopause or Mm. like getting older. And and actually uh, things are kind of showing up. And we work on the premise that the things that are showing up in the now are there because of our earlier life experiences. So what we would do is something called a drop back. So we would ask somebody to really kind of light up that neural network. Okay. so when you think about that moment with with your partner, what do you see in that moment when you hold that in your mind? What do you believe to be true about yourself? What words go with that? Oh, I'm unheard. I'm powerless. um, I'm out of control, whatever it might be. Where do you hold that in your body? Oh, I feel that in my chest. It's really heavy. I feel really sad. I feel really lost. Right. Hold that. Notice that and just drop back in time as far back as you need to go. We don't suggest looking for memories because we're not necessarily looking for memories because if it's pre-verbal, it might be a representative image. It might be a body memory. It might just be a real fragment, really tiny bit of information. And that's all we need to work with. So they go back and they say, do you know what? I'm sure I'm imagining this, but I just think of a baby in an in an incubator. So a client I work with, she was premature and um, she, in the context of lots of other things that then later on went on in life, but she was in an incubator when she was first born. And she just had a representative image of this little baby in the incubator. And there was key emotional needs and physical needs that she knew, even though it was keeping her alive, weren't being met, right? She had none of that, that skin contact. She didn't have that closeness with mum. So we worked with that. It was a representative image of, of the story that she knew about her childhood and her trauma. So we only need fragments. And then at what point do you insert new
1: memories? You know, I've spoken to people who've gone through this process mm-hmm. and they've said that they go back to a very, very painful place. And, mm. you know, I remember one person saying that they'd never actually cried, I think, so much you know in all their life, you know, actually going back and, and, and revisiting this. But then you are able to recreate that event Mm -hmm. So, for example, say it was a baby in an incubator, you know, you actually remember that and then you say, well, actually now that baby is being picked up and it is being held and you're having that warm skin to skin contact and you can smell the the smell of your mother's skin and somebody stroking your hair and talking to you softly. Is, Is that what you're doing? Do you then take a bad situation and kind of generate a new memory that you're then putting into somebody's mind?
0: Yes, very often we can absolutely do that. Yes, and certainly with um, with early attachment trauma, we would absolutely do that. So it's called rescripting, and rescripting is shared by other therapeutic approaches. The way that we do it in the MDR is to connect with attachment resources. So we would think, for example, of um, people, animals, beings that you connect to being nurtured or protected, or that it might be wise. And The reason being, and again, I explain this to clients, that actually when we've had early attachment trauma, the chances are we've probably missed out on those things. And we're probably not so good at being super self-compassionate and nurturing. And we probably have experienced times in our lives where we weren't protected, where we didn't have that guidance and that wisdom. And some clients I work with have never had that. So you're not necessarily thinking of people that they have in their lives that offer those resources, but people and things that they connect to, that they associate with those feelings. So, for example, a client might choose Aunt Bessie, you know, from the the Yorkshire puddings and the roast potatoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's what she's connecting with is that kind of archetypal Feeling and person that she connects to, nurturing and loving. And we might imagine that person coming into the room and picking up that little baby and taking care of them. Sometimes people do and have had experiences of people in their lives um, loving them, taking care of them, and we might use those resources. But that allows us to re script. So, what that's about doing is about saying, okay, well, the past has happened. But actually that little baby, that child, those parts of our nervous system, they're still with us today. They exist in our nervous systems and they're as real and as they ever were, right? Because our nervous system kind of grows as kind of layers. We are multiple selves. We're We're much more like those sort of geological cliffs that you see with all the layers of different geological time periods than we are anything else. That little... Baby, that little three-year-old, four-year-old, seven-year-old doesn't stop existing within your nervous system. It's just that layers of other more grown-up parts of our nervous system grow around it, so we can drop back into our nervous system, into those littler parts, and take care of them. So we can do that imaginarily. We can do that by bringing in a resource figure and meeting the needs, repairing the rupture, taking care of and and looking after that little part in the way that should have happened in the first place
1: that's really interesting that you never lose that that small being if you like is it a little bit like the Russian dolls where, you know, exactly like we've that. got this nice big grown up doll on the outside, but still inside, you you know, you can take them, take them apart and, you know, you remove one, 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 until you get to this tiny, tiny little bean sort of right yes, in the middle. Yes. And so are you saying that that little tiny dot of, of, of a doll, if you like, is still there inside the brain and other things have grown around Absolutely. it and you need to access that tiny, tiny speck and sort of reprogram or support nourish nurture whatever that that tiny person to enable the rest of the brain to to then follow on
0: yeah absolutely absolutely it's exactly right and people will have experienced this firsthand you know where we can find ourselves suddenly overwhelmed by a big emotion or feel suddenly very little or completely you know sort of sat there looking for the adult you know Mm. (laughs) um and I think every one of us will have experienced that at some point in our lifetime. And those different parts of us and different aspects of us. Again, we talk about this really freely in day-to-day conversation. You know, if you've got a big life decision to make, we can sit there and go, well, a part of me wants to do this, but a part of me doesn't, you know? Right. And, and we 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 yes. absolutely connected yeah. that multiplicity and, and recognize it. So, yeah, absolutely. And... When we're triggered, you know, when we drop back into these little parts of ourselves, we don't have the resources that grown-up professional self might have. We suddenly feel like a big kid again. We suddenly act like a teenager. We suddenly behave like a little kid. We suddenly want to be looked after. We suddenly feel very small and alone in the world. But we can repair that by taking care of that little part of your nervous system.
1: Absolutely fascinating. I know, Cheryl, that you specialize in helping people who've experienced trauma and often really quite extreme trauma how difficult is it for you as a therapist how draining is it to spend your days listening to what must be sometimes the most appalling stories of abuse and terrible circumstances
0: I have to I mean we as psychologists we we have to have supervision And supervision is uh, partly to make sure that we don't go completely left field and and start making our own stuff up, that we stick to the evidence base. But it is also to take care of us. I think that it is really important to recognise what is good and nourishing for you as an individual, whether that's going for a run, whether that's playing with your kids, whether that's, uh, you know, a book club or, um, you know, doing Sudoku, whatever it might be, it's recognising that. I have to say though that I am really nourished by it, by the work that I do, because there is such changes that happen. It is the most inspiring thing to work with somebody and see that moment of shift and that release of shame or that letting go of fear of suddenly they look you in the eye and go but i'm here now aren't i i am safe now i survived it's yeah. so powerful mm. and it doesn't i think because, maybe because of the nature of vmdr and how it works as a process it it doesn't very often doesn't feel like i'm doing it i'm just kind of there watching someone go through the process right so it feels like a massive mm. honor yeah absolutely they are in the driving seat So you are absolutely right. Trauma therapy is tough work. It is hard. You've got to feel to heal, right? So there's more research coming out now about the the necessity to what we call light up the neural pathway. So that means really get someone feeling back into that trauma again. Because we know that the more activated that is, the more successful the treatment is. So it is tough work. But my personal belief is it's always got to feel under the control of the client. Trauma is all about powerlessness. So therapy has to be about feeling under control and in control. And um, and therefore, I guess it feels very much like the client is in the driving seat. I might have the sat nav, but they're the <laughs> right. one that's definitely driving. Love it.
1: Yeah. So how bad, for want of a better word, does someone's past have to be in in order to benefit from EMDR? So is it something that perhaps those with a low level of constant anxiety or fear or phobia, for example, could benefit from?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, across the spectrum. So when it comes to complexity and severity, we simplify. So the the processes and the way that we work become more simple because you're working with much more fragmented, younger parts of the nervous system. So you just have to be much more gentle in the same way as you would do if you're working with kids. But somebody who's maybe, I guess for want of a better word, more robust, you know, that actually they they have they haven't had quite so much trauma perhaps they've had a good fairly good secure attachment relationship maybe a few wobbles but actually over the course of their lifetime they've developed anxiety or depression responds just as well and it it works uh, beautifully as well with neurodiversity too so clients with adhd clients with autism again you definitely need to be kind of mindful of approaching things differently particularly with autism um um, but with ADHD, um, I think it can process very quickly because people's brains work very quickly anyway with ADHD and very laterally. So, you know, things that might take a little bit longer for someone work very quickly for someone with ADHD.
1: I'm fascinated by the thought that ADHD or, or ADD can be affected by this. Do you think it's because the neurodiverse condition was triggered by trauma in the first place and that's what you are healing or is it that simply that their brain is operating in a different way and they're more likely to, to to benefit as you say from the quickness of their response again a
0: very good question it's it's a complex answer so there is a huge amount of overlap between even just the presentation of adhd and trauma. So, for example, the inability to focus, the roller coaster of emotions, maybe disorganisation of of the brain. You know, the threat response. And when we look at childhood, unfortunately, you know, if if somebody has had a really difficult childhood, they might well have both. Uh, they might well have ADHD and trauma. And we also know that ADHD there is a higher risk of later life trauma um, because sometimes some of the uh, sort of impulsive um, decision-making can can lead to yeah. some tricky situations. Or get you into trouble. Yeah, it yes. absolutely does. <laughs> For yeah. sure. Um, mm. So uh, sometimes it's about working with somebody and recognising their ADHD, but what your target is is the trauma. Sometimes, though, there are newly developing protocols actually supporting clients with ADHD. So you're not looking to take away those symptoms of adhd for example you know you that's the way that their brain is wired up but what you're looking at is the struggle around it so if for example somebody really struggles to concentrate or focus or you know for want of a better word kind of adult is very often what people say to me i really you know i feel bad Mm. because i can't adult i can't do the things (laughs) that i see other people doing Then, uh, you know, what you would do is look at, okay, well, what does that feel like it says or means about you? Oh, it means I'm a failure. And so often there's going to be a little thread in there about getting it wrong and feeling very different to the world around you and feeling not good enough, less than and that's the struggle that we can do something about because that doesn't feel very good and that shuts us down that gets us into threat brain as well so if we can help somebody with that so actually the protocols now look at actually helping someone to desensitize not necessarily the reprocessing bit although we can use that but the desensitization just letting go of that struggle you know, changing the way that that's held so that they don't beat themselves up and give themselves such a hard time for those experiences, that they can embrace that with compassion,
1: Gosh I can think of a few people who I would love to experience that How early can you start? I mean is this something that is safe or even advisable for children to prevent those from problems from happening in later
0: life Yeah, you can you can work with children the the EMDR protocol start from uh, from even as young as two um, it would be a very very adapted protocol but absolutely if somebody has been through trauma it would be really important to work with you would work you would be wanting to work very much with the family as well alongside that and you would have especially if it well only if it was a very good relationship between caregivers and and the the child you would actually have the 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 caregiver in there to help with the processing and the containment because they of course at that age that tender age are the the child's safe place and base so you you work very much as a facilitator in that process in terms of Helping children with with any of these things that we've discussed, yeah, it it works beautifully. Mm. And again, children, when I've worked with kids with adolescents, again, the the shifts that happen is is remarkably quick.
1: Yes, I was going to ask you actually, how how soon do you see results? Is it sort of a one session or or
0: years of doing this? Though obviously, with increased severity and increased experience of it's not not necessarily the the age and stage at which someone comes into therapy just maybe the the earliness of the trauma and the severity of that trauma it it does change the the way that things can progress Mm -hmm. having said that even with clients with gosh the most harrowing kind of trauma experiences you know you can be working on something and supporting them with something and see a massive shift in a in a session it might be that you know that that's still in the in the context of a couple of years worth of therapy for them, but you know that you you do get these just incredible changes and and shifts within um, within a, a session or so. So it's not that you're working all that time and then it you only see the benefits at the end of the you know that long period of time. You know you you would see th- see things sh- uh, shift and change throughout that period of time, but you know that's very extreme trauma. Certainly, you know, with other experiences of trauma, you can see changes in a really short period of time. And as I say, with kids, maybe even just sort of one, two, three, uh, four, five, six sessions—you know, like just a handful of sessions—and mm. you can see a shift. And does it have to be in person, or could you do this online? You can do it online. Can you? So I, yeah, I was using it online with clients before COVID, working with clients abroad who obviously couldn't commute in, and uh, we were using lots of different ways of, of doing it. Usually over a Zoom, and and they were tapping, or you can download an app and watch a really? um, yeah, a light bar from one side to the other but there's oh, now the most goodness. amazing yeah. platforms that you can use where it's it's like zoom or, or or teams or something like that but you it's it's specifically for emdr you log on and you can have uh, the eye movements and you can have tones moving in in from one side to the other and you can even use buzzers um so you send out buzzers to the client and they can have buzzers moving from one side to the other as well Absolutely fascinating. Cheryl, I know people
1: are going to be really interested in digging more into this. Where are the best places to go to, to find out more?
0: The best place really to start is probably the EMDR Association for UK and Ireland. So if people even just put that into the search bar, you know, that, that will come up. And that they're the, the kind of governing body. They're the ones that make sure that training is exactly as it should be, that EMDR therapists are required. So anyone that you find on that website will be accredited and have gone through very specific training in order to to even be on that website. And they give great information as well. There's links to podcasts, links to uh, videos so they can see a little bit about what it might involve before they even embark on that. There are more specific website addresses if you want to look into like attachment focused EMDR uh Laurel Parnell she has really kind of taken EMDR and adapted it to work with that early attachment experience that might be really pertinent to people so uh, so again sort of looking into any of those would be a really, really great place to start. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that we pop some links in the
1: show notes so that people can, can go and find resources. And then I guess finally, are there any simple techniques for self-help or does it
0: always have to be through a therapist? No, not at all. So again, Laurel Parnell has created a, a book called Tapping In, which is very much about using resources to help calm your nervous system, to help boost your confidence, feel safe, feel strong, feel good in the world." and to use particularly tapping. If you're going to do kind of resource installation, we call it, so, you know, really kind of strengthening those those own internal resources, I would always advise kind of tapping as the first line of uh, defence, as it were, because I think the eye movements would be a bit too much for anyone to try and do. But there are apps, so you can download an app and have um, the light bar and look at the light bar. There's even EMDR music for example, on Spotify. So wow, I should be looking that up. Yeah. um, It's it's what I would always advise people to do is if you want to really strengthen those really good positive resources, then that's great. Obviously, if you want to think about processing trauma, then definitely um, seek out a therapist, you know, just to have that 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 guided experience so that you know when we become stuck or we need help overcoming something we've got someone with that perspective to be able to do that but there's lots of ways that you can you can access it and make it work for yourself. Cheryl absolutely brilliant
1: I think this conversation will hopefully lead to many changes in the positive direction for many many people listening thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure it's a
0: pleasure thank you.
1: Well, Cheryl, again, a huge thank you for your time. I do think this whole area is fascinating. And as I said in my intro, I have had personal experience with members of my family Very much being helped by EMDR. So, a massive thanks from me and from them, not only to Cheryl, but to all the EMDR therapists that we have personally connected with. And if you'd like to learn more about different types of therapies, and Cheryl mentioned tapping earlier, well, from tapping to havening, do listen back to our recent episodes with Poppy Delbridge and Paul McKenna. They both really dive deep into this incredible connection that we have between mind and body. And by the way, if you would prefer to listen to those and all future episodes ad-free, you can now subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. You get early access to the new episodes also. And of course there are lots more articles and resources to help support our mental health on LizardWellbeing.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, perhaps you've done EMDR therapy yourself. I'd love to hear from you. I am at LizelleMe on social media and you can also find the team and me at Liz Earle Wellbeing. I will be back next week. So until then, go well. Bye bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anoushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith.
2: O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, SolderGennero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.